This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Disruption is a word that is used quite a bit on this show, as well as our friend Dave Robertson's Innovation Navigation and others here on Sirius XM 111. Author Antonio Garcia Martinez calls the people behind a lot of that disruption chaos monkeys, and they end up being pretty powerful people in today's digital world. Garcia Martinez was the founder and CEO of AdGrok. He has also been an advisor to Twitter and a product manager at Facebook, and he has penned a book that looks at his experiences and at some of these people and the process as well. The book is titled, as we mentioned, Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley. And Antonio joins us on the show right now. Welcome, sir. Great to have you. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, So these chaos monkeys, what are kind of the characteristics that, that, that make them stand out? Right. I think um, it's maybe worth getting into what Chaos Monkeys means. Sure. Um, some of your listeners might know. So Chaos Monkeys is actually a piece of software that, that Netflix created. Yeah. And what it does is it actually literally shuts down their own servers, and they test whether they can actually still stream, for example, House of Cards. So the image you should have is like this wild monkey rampaging through a data center, knocking out computers. Yeah. What I meant what meant it is sort of metaphorically that these days Silicon Valley is sort of the zoo where the chaos monkeys are kept. Yeah. And they run around and they pull the plug on taxis, say, and say, look, every, everyone could be a taxi driver now yeah. thanks to Uber. Or they say, you know what, we're not going to have hotels anymore. Everyone with a spare bedroom and an Airbnb can actually become a hotel keeper. And so right now Silicon Valley to me is, is almost like this, this gaggle of chaos monkeys that's sort of testing society. I think the question we really have – as a society is like, well, can we sort of tolerate how robust are we to the to the chaos monkeys and what they're doing to our society? And, and this is a change that's going on every day. You mentioned Uber with with, with the taxi uh, industry right now. I mean, th- for the last, what, probably 10 or 15 years, we've seen a lot of this change happen. And realistically, we're, we're still in kind of, you know, maybe the first couple of innings of a baseball game right now with so much more change that, that's possible to happen. Yeah, I mean, for example, I, I you know I go to the uh, the demo day for Y Combinator, which is this accelerator in Silicon Valley that that's fathered a lot of companies, and that my company went through. And you know, what struck me is that like literally every company is basically taking some part of of you know either white collar or blue collar work and basically replacing it with automation, right? Yeah. And if you just take if you just take one particular example, for example, you know, autonomous vehicles or self driving cars, when you consider that you know truck driving is sort of, you know, the most common job in many U.S. states and, and one of the few ways that a non-college graduate can actually feed a family, you know, truck, truck driving is going to go away. There won't be truck drivers in 10 to 20 years. I mean, that, that's how fast autonomous vehicles are coming to us, right? So that's just one example of, of one part of the economy that's going to be, you know, fundamentally changed thanks to Silicon Valley. We're talking with uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez, who's the author of the book Chaos Monkeys. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So when you started AdGrok, and then it was basically a piece of, of Twitter at that point, I guess, uh, and then Facebook took it over, how did you, how did you really see this, this shift really first start happening? Well, I mean... Uh, 
one way to think about it, uh, there's a famous quote from Mark Andreessen, who's a big VC, is that, you know, in the future, you're either going to tell the, there are going to be two types of jobs. You either tell the computer what to do or the computer tells you what to do. And, you know, I mean, AgRock was a very small part of that. We, we made what's called marketing automation software. So in other words, the person who, who runs your, you know, Google search campaign, the ads that, Google's run, that Google runs, we were replacing it with software. Yep. So, we were, you know, we were, we were a very sort of small piece of that. Um, you know, you mentioned the company being bought by Twitter and going to Facebook. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of other things going on in Silicon Valley just at the business level. You know, we were what's called an aqua hire, right? What that means is, you know, companies have so much trouble finding engineers, they literally buy other companies just to recruit people. And that effectively is what we were, which is one of the sort of dark secrets that I sort of get into in the book, which is that, you know, a lot of acquisitions are really not about the technology. It's really about the talent, um, which which was definitely the case in, in, in our case. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, AgRock was definitely our voice through that, through that sort of Silicon Valley weirdness that, you know, in 2010 was already sort of raging, but at this point has, has really reached the peak. Uh, how much more will, will, will Silicon Valley make this kind of a crazy world, uh, going forward in, in, in the next 20 to 30 years, you think? Oh, I think it's only going to accelerate. I mean, technology, you know, accelerates exponentially. Um, you know, obviously, I was most familiar with the social media side of things, right? And, um, it, you know, the, the way I think about social media, and, and I thought about this as I was writing the book, as I wrote it in a small town, you know, social media is basically re- replacing the rudiments of sort of small town life for us, right? It's, it's uh, you know, with the so-called Dunbar's number, the 150 people that we, whose names we remember and who we care about now exist on our mobile phone, right? And, and so that social media takeover of, of our social lives, what, what makes us us, I think will only accelerate. And if you look at things like, Augmented reality, for example, the Pokemon game that's, that's yeah. at this point, it's being used almost as much as Twitter or looking further down the road. For example, the Oculus acquisition, which is this uh, you know, virtual reality hardware company that Facebook bought a couple of years ago, um, that that virtualization of our social lives will, will only accelerate. And we're going to have we're going to live through a, a mediated small town that exists in our smartphones more and more. Uh, your time working with with Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you you talk a little bit about uh, the the job that he has done uh, running Facebook. Uh, just a, a little bit about his vision and his thought process, and how he kind of fits into this realm of uh, of this world of chaos monkeys. Yeah, I mean, the book actually starts with a, with a Zuck meeting, with a Zuck and Cheryl meeting, actually. Um, to approve a lot of the crazy data targeting stuff that we ended up developing at Facebook. Um, you know, I think. Uh, you know, Zuck didn't work directly in ads because he doesn't really care about money. That was really Cheryl's job. But I think, you know, the vision, his his mantra, the mantra of the company is, uh, you know, creating a more open and connected world. And everyone there really believes that. Um, you know, I actually describe Zuckerberg as a genius and, and not so much a cognitive genius in terms of being, you know, the smartest guy in the world. More that he created this, he, he's fostered this corporate culture in which engineers come first. And very smart young engineers are very committed to, to his vision. And people actually really believe in that vision. They, they really want to create the sort of, you know, communication and identity layer for the Internet through Facebook. That, that is the true corporate vision. And Zuckerberg is the one behind that and who's driven it forward all this time. And what's that like for, for people that are, that are new employees that are coming to work for, for Facebook and trying to really understand that whole process? And, and, and I guess it's not even really a buy-in. You have to really have to have that philosophy even before you're hired there, correct? Well, the, the, there is a conversion process. It's called onboarding. Yeah. And here's how it works. Your, your first day at Facebook, you'll have two emails in your inbox. You know, one is a sort of generic, welcome to Facebook, et cetera. And the second one is, here's a list of, of software bugs to fix. And on your first day, you'll pull uh, a version of Facebook's code to your personal 
machine, that's your version of Facebook. And you're encouraged to go ahead and make changes, upgrades, improvements, whatever, from day one. You're actually entrusted with that much authority. I mean, Facebook is literally a quarter of the Internet everywhere in the world except China. And here, some you know, 22-year-old engineering grad has a version of it on his machine, and he's going to push a change to it today. And so that's how they foster that, that feeling of, of sort of rambunctious responsibility. Uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez joins us. He's the uh, author of the book Chaos Monkeys, uh, Upseen Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. It is interesting to see how how Facebook has, has kind of changed and evolved, especially over the last few years. You know, everybody, when it first came out, you know, you thought of it strictly as social media, but it has become so much more now. And, and obviously so many comments uh, recently in the last week about about the live video and the concerns uh, of, uh, of what kind of responsibility Facebook might have with some of these incidents that have gone on recently. Yeah, no, it is interesting, right? Because, I mean, Facebook has become much more than just a way to keep up with your friends, right? As you mentioned, it's the way we read news. It's the way you know, we perceive reality. It's the way that we share experiences, often very negative ones. So that I think the ones that you're hinting at with Facebook Live. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, frankly, that was one of the challenges of working at Facebook. I mean, Facebook has become kind of everything to all people. And when you push a certain product and push people to, for example, engage with trending topics, the, the trending topics you see on the right, you know, often that'll distract from some other use, what you'd call a use case, right? Which is, for example, personal sharing. Um, you know, one of the stories with Facebook right now is that people are sharing personally less than they used to. And you might notice that if you go and use Facebook, you'll note that the little window where they ask you to post, they're trying to induce you to get, you know, sort of share more of your personal information. And it's, it's hard to maintain this balance between, hey, this is where I read news and, you know, see some horrible video of some act of brutality or whatever, and at the same time share photos from my birthday party, right? That's a, yeah. that's a very, that's a very hard, that's a, it's hard for most people to actually reconcile that. And so I think that's one of the challenges that Facebook is going to, is going to face going forward actually is how, how to reconcile all those various use cases. Does, and, does and what, and, yeah. I was going to say, does sure. it become too much at, at a point in your mind? I think it might be. I think some people find it very overwhelming. And, 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 and given that Facebook has actually penetrated every demographic, right? So literally the way a 17-year-old teenager and a 65-year-old grandmother in Nebraska <laughs> use the same tool and somehow make it equally compelling for both, I think that's, that's going to be very difficult going forward. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Uh, you also talk a little bit about the, the, the connection through mobile, uh, and I think that's a, 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 an important thing to bring up because of the fact that so many people, majority of people here in the U.S., have a smartphone uh, with them seemingly 24-7 uh, at this point. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the story towards the, the second half of the book. Um, I, you know, the, you know the, one of the dramas of the book is, is right around the time of the IPO, Facebook's revenue was, you know, wasn't growing quite as, as expected. And so there was a sort of panic around trying to come up with every monetization idea, which is sort of where I came in uh, with some of these data joining ideas. Um, and, you know, as it turned out, the sort of the big anticlimax was at the end of the day, what sort of saved Facebook wasn't all the cool technology we had built necessarily. It was this massive shift to mobile that happened right around 2013 and 2014. Um, you know, literally uh, something like it, it seemed almost overnight, more than half of Facebook usage was on mobile devices. Yeah. And the challenge there was to actually monetize there, right? I mean, you know, the saying is, you know, money chases eyeballs, right? But sure. sometimes that's, that's a very slow process. And so Facebook, you know, their, their big success actually was actually monetizing that channel. And, and right now, uh, something like 
80% of, of Facebook usage is on mobile, along with its revenue, which is actually huge. And so, yeah, mobile has completely changed everything for, for Facebook. Do you, th- do you think that, that Twitter has the opportunity going forward, or are they too far behind at this point, uh, to be able to, to gain ground back against Facebook? Yeah, you know, that, that's a really good question. I, I think I think Twitter's problems are twofold. One is product, and the other is sort of corporate governance. Um, yeah. You know, what, you know, one is Twitter used to be the sort of public forum where everyone would meet to have a sort of open public conversation, unlike the, the somewhat more private conversations we have on Facebook. But instead, Twitter has sort of veered into becoming a platform for celebrities and its fans and basically public figures talking to each other. And, you know, I, at this point, I find it hard for the average person. I'm not sure quite what value they actually get from from Twitter. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the other problem they have is that and, and I and I highlight this in the book is as I mentioned, like the company got bought by Twitter. I went to Facebook. I went back to Twitter. So it was this constant contrast between Facebook and Twitter. Uh, unlike Facebook, I think Twitter has had a lot of management problems, and it doesn't have that sort of one steely-eyed visionary founder like Facebook does that can guide it in a certain direction and make the sort of large bet the company moves that Zuckerberg can make. Um, you know, Dorsey is back at the helm at, at Twitter, but you know he. He's still got his foot at square. It's not quite the same feeling of like, you know, this is the incarnation of our philosophy. And then this is like, you know, this is almost the profit of our religion. And we're going forward with this guy. That feeling at Twitter doesn't exist. I, and so I think that's a major problem. I, I am right in line with you in terms of what Twitter is right now, because, uh, you know, hosting this radio show and you retweeted me you know, a little while ago. It's yes. it's it's a PR tool because I it want is, yeah. I want to get I want to get the information out about who's coming on the show, what we're going to be talking about. And that's the only time I use it, and that's a big yeah, yeah. Pro- and that's a big problem for them to try and try and overcome. Right, and, and you know, and you can always tell, by the way, that you know, what company Facebook fears or what feature they're going after next by who by whose features they copy. Right, the only thing that Twitter has that sort of Facebook doesn't is that real timey PR aspect. Right, the fact that like some big news piece happened, where do I go to find out what's going on? It's still kind of Twitter, right? And that's that's why you have the trending topics on the right at Facebook. Facebook is trying to take down sort of the last leg that Twitter's standing on, which is that, that real-time feeling to it and that feeling of celebrities talking to each other. Um, uh, but, yeah, that's that's what Twitter is these days. So so then then something that, uh, that Twitter did that caught a lot of people's attention a few months back uh, was to sign a deal with the National Football League to broadcast uh, games on Twitter. What do you think that's going to do for for that, or or will it help it or not? Yeah, videos, the eternal conundrum on social media. Um, yeah, I guess I mean there's the notion of the second screen, right? The fact that you're engaged, uh, you know, with with a TV or or with you know some spectacle, and then what what's the app that you have open when you're sharing that experience? And that you know that's Twitter's always been doing that. It, it always seems like it's been the bid for that. I mean, I, I even get to it in the joking way in the book when my company was getting bought. Um, you know, they had brought me in and as a way to sort of, I guess, seduce me, they mentioned, look, Lady Gaga is right here at Twitter, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm so uncool. I'm so uncool. I'm sorry to confess. I didn't even know who Lady Gaga was. But it, in any case, I had to look it up. But the point is, like, Twitter's always kind of pushed sports and celebrities as a vehicle for that, right? And, and, and it still, to some degree, has a stranglehold on that uh, right now. Oh. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Uh, I'd also be interested in, in getting your opinion uh on all the disruption and, and all the changes that are happening right now on a company like Amazon, especially them coming off of that, that Prime Day two days ago. 
Yeah, Amazon. You know, it's funny. I, I mentioned Amazon a few times in the book because obviously they, they advertise a lot. They have one of the biggest yep. advertising budgets in the world. And, um, you know, it, it's funny. The world looks very different from inside Facebook than it does from somewhere else. Uh, for someone like Zuckerberg, uh, you know, or his acolytes, you know, the only companies they really fear are, you know, companies run by uh, leaders who are just as monomaniacal as Zuckerberg with some vast vision of the world and the resources to actually you know, implement it. And so, uh, you know, discussions with, I actually get into some of the details, discussions with Amazon were always quite fraught um, because, you know, someone like Zuckerberg looks across at, you know, formerly Steve Jobs at Apple or Larry Page at Google or Bezos at Amazon, and he sees a mirror of himself, right? Yeah. And that's kind of terrifying. And so, um, you, you know, it, it sometimes felt that inside Facebook, there was a sort of Game of Thrones going on between Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And it was just a question of, and the various touch points, mobile, advertising, the user experience, it was this constant battle for sort of influence and, and, and reach. And um, yeah, I mean, when it came to things like, you know, e-commerce or identity or data, you'll note, for example, that Amazon doesn't have a like button, right? Yeah, and, right. Uh, yeah. And now as an author, I'm reading my reviews on Amazon. It's like, wow, they don't really have a Facebook login, so you don't actually know who they are. And, that, and that's very intentional. It's unfortunate, frankly, I think. I mean, Amazon reviews are not as good as they could be if they had real identity. But, that, but that's the reality of it. There's this sort of there's this massive sort of cold war between these companies, and there's little border skirmishes around things like the like button or advertising. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's what it was like inside, uh, inside Facebook when you were dealing with Amazon. It was this very fraught negotiation. It, it is kind of interesting to see how, how Facebook kind of uses new little things to, to, to try and make those connections with, uh, with their consumers. Uh, and in some respects, it's to kind of get away from that, you know, being that just that strictly that media outlet and, and the place to get news. Just something as simple as, as putting those emojis on, uh, on the site now. And, and that's something that, you know, when they started to do that, that drew a lot of attention uh, you know, as to, you know, what is this going to do? You know, will people like these? Will they not like them? Is it too much? You know, it. it I, I think we're getting to the point where Facebook it, it ha- is going to have to deal with an issue of of whether or not they are perceived to be being too involved in people's lives these days. I, I think so. I mean, people, I think, had a very conflicted relationship with Facebook, right? I mean, it's it's a negative comparison, but it's almost like the attitude of like the drug addict with their drug, right? I mean, they sort of yep. need it, but they sort of load themselves for using it at the same time. And so, and this often expresses itself as the sort of corporate hate in a way. Um, yeah, no, no, I agree. But I, you know, I think that's the perpetual story of Facebook, right? Like when, when Newsfeed first came out in 2006 or whatever, people were, were absolutely horrified that they'd actually, that their activity would actually be broadcast. Yeah. And if you if you were to turn off Newsfeed now, there would be riots in the streets, right? And the reality is that's true of almost every Facebook feature. Like people might actually, uh, you know, reject or question those emojis now, but I guarantee you a year from now, if they were removed, yeah. uh, people would sort of severely object to it. And that's just the reality of, of, of social media. You take time in the book, and you uh, alluded to it before, uh, to talk about that time frame around, uh, around the IPO. What was, the, what was that like being around there at that point? You know, it was fascinating, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, as an exercise in sort of corporate culture, um, you know, and I cite a lot of references that some of your listeners might slightly object to. But, for example, on February 1st, 2012, when Facebook announced it was going public, Zuck gave this big speech in a tent in the parking lot outside of Facebook. And he was sort of haranguing his troops and reminding everyone to stay focused. 
And, you know, it just reminded me almost of, of something like a North Korean or a Cuban dictator, you know, addressing his assembled, <laughs> his assembled and, and, and I draw that, that, that conclusion. And, you know, and there's and it, 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 it's true that it was exciting and, and it was bracing. But on the other hand, there were certain hypocrisies baked into it. When I was sitting there listening to Zuck, there was one of the earlier employees in front of me and, and she was shopping for expensive San Francisco real estate. Right? And she, you know, she was obviously one of the, you know, one of the wealthier employees having been there a very long time. And, and the secret is that a lot of, you know, recent employees like me, for example, you know, weren't necessarily due to receive, you know, really life-changing wealth. Everyone thinks that everyone's wealthy at Facebook. That, that's actually not true. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, there was, there was one of these weird hypocrisies of like, well, I guess, you know, we're, we're finally vindicated, but, you know, everyone's focused, but some are more focused than others on this team, evidently. Um, and then, you know, the other thing was from the, the business point of view, maybe more interesting to your listeners was, as I mentioned, you know, there was a real revenue crisis. Revenue was not growing in the way that, sure. that the market had sort of expected. And so there was this sort of panic to, to like come up with new ideas. And the reality is that, you know, and I didn't realize this before working there, we look at companies like Facebook and Google and Apple, and, you know, they present this very well manicured exterior of sort of, you know, product vision meets steely eyed execution turns into successful product and everything is just perfect. And the reality is there's actually like a lot of flailing behind the scenes and like not really knowing what's going on. I mean, here's the secret to Silicon Valley. Here's how it really works. And anyone who's worked on the inside would agree. You know, in Silicon Valley, you launch 10 ideas, seven utterly fail and are sort of swept under the rug and forgotten yeah. to sort of succeed for the reasons you think. And then one goes absolutely gangbusters for reasons that really only make sense in retrospect. And, and that's, that's really how it works. And Facebook is really good at that. Like it launches products constantly that we've forgotten about and that fail utterly. But yet, you know, every once in a while you get, you know, photo tagging, for example, which is what made Facebook and which was an almost accidental feature that they had developed. And that's, that's really how it works, even though no one inside Silicon Valley would sort of openly admit that. And it's not that that, that one is just successful. It is monetized, and, and the level of success that it has is through the roof. And it more than makes up for those other nine ideas that, that really don't pan out. That's right. And, and, and by the way, you see this all throughout Silicon Valley. What, what we just said is the exact business model of your typical venture capitalist. Yeah. They invest yeah. in 10 companies, understanding that, that nine of them will, will go bust, but one will become Google. And they're totally fine with that. That is just how the valley works. 844-942-7866 is the number. We're talking uh, with Antonio Garcia Martinez. The book is Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune, and Random Failure in Silicon Valley. Uh, speaking of Zuckerberg and, and, and you know the fact that you, know, you have these successes, but you have these failures, he, I, I guess you'd have to call it a failure, his investment in the Newark school systems. And I guess he had this vision of, of what it was going to happen, and it hasn't played out to this point. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I don't want to criticize that too much because I think you know one of the one of the re very real criticisms one can level at Silicon Valley is that they don't they don't have a feeling of civic involvement, right? I mean, right. I, I don't know how much you hear on the East Coast that you know, there's all sorts of urban problems in, in San Francisco right now, right. and the reality is that Silicon Valley is typically pretty indifferent to them, and so the fact that you know someone with the resources and the sway to actually get involved and try to fix things, I think that, I think that's actually great. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think we're often that very philanthropic urge like crashes on the rocks of reality is when techies have to deal with, uh, you know, the sort of legacy realities of a broken school system and all the political, you know, intrigues and, and, and basically hidden agendas that are buried in there. And I think 
somebody somebody like Mark Zuckerberg or, or really anybody in Silicon Valley is going to have a, a hard time mustering the sort of patience and diplomacy and sort of long-term vision that it takes to actually change that. And, and I think that's part of the reason of, of what, what happened there in Newark, actually. Do they, want, do they want it to happen overnight and it's just not something that, that could happen overnight? And obviously it's, it's a little bit of a different realm than, than, than he has been used to. No, exactly, exactly, and 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 working within you know working within the framework of some political system that maybe is broken but exists in a certain way due to decades of history right. is not something that I think your average startup guy like even understands. Uh, here's here's like an alternative to the Newark uh, you know thing. There's a, there's a new type of school. I'm not pitching or plugging it at all, but just as an example, it's called Alt School, and it's sort of a charter school thing from elementary to high school, and it's actually venture backed. It, it is a venture backed charter school system hmm. with an expanding number of schools. And I think that that's the sort of thing that I think your average startup guy, and, and it's a former Googler who's doing it. And that's the sort of, they would consider that to be like their reform-minded civic involvement rather than trying to somehow resurrect, uh, you know, this existing school system right. in, in a framework that they don't understand. Great book. Uh, Antonio, thank you very much for, for giving us some time today. Greatly appreciate it. No, great. Thank you. Thank you. Antonio Garcia Martinez. The book is Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.